I'm Susan Branscom, and this is Leading She. She came to speak, and she held up that newspaper article. And she said something like, you know, what are you going to do about this? And then Jack, Jack Welch came the next day to speak. He spoke, and then he took questions, and a, a young woman came up, and she said, you know, Heidi so-and-so said we ought to demand a seat at the table. And what do you think about that? And he said, turn the lights up. I want to see who asked this question. And they turned the lights up. And he said, let me tell you, don't you ever demand a seat at my table. Kate Curran is founder and CEO of School the World, an international education nonprofit organization which helps solve extreme poverty by building schools and organizing communities around education in Central America. Kate describes herself as fiercely determined, and though spent much of her career at GE, she is a true entrepreneur. After a year-long sabbatical after three family deaths, Kate determined her calling after seeing a Tanzanian classroom of children sharing one pencil. Inspired by her public servant parents, she knew she had to do something, so she formed School of the World in 2009. Enjoy listening to Kate Curran's story. I want to welcome today to Leading She, Kate Curran, the founder and CEO of School of the World, an international education organization serving over 12,000 children in rural Central America. School of the World is a nonprofit organization committed to solving extreme poverty through the power of education by building schools, training teachers, and engaging parents in the local community. The organization employs, at any point in time, 25 to 30 employees and is focused on Guatemala, Honduras, and Panama. The organization has built 106 schools and 56 playgrounds and educated over 12,000 children, trained over 5,000 teachers, and empowered more than 7,500 parents. The programs provide quality education to some of the world's poorest children from early childhood through early adolescence. So welcome, Kate. Thank you. Thank you for having me, Susan. Yeah, great to have you here. The website of the organization is schoolotheworld.org, and the philosophy of School of the World is, we believe all children love to learn, want to learn, and are capable of learning. We believe all parents want a better life for their children, and all teachers prefer motivation and achievement to apathy and failure. Nevertheless, we recognize that the complexities behind generational poverty require us to be innovative and often disruptive to change of the status quo. Prior to School of the World, Kate was an executive with GE Capital, Vice President of External Affairs for seven and a half years. Before GE, she worked as a judicial law clerk in the New York City U.S. Court of Appeals in the Second Circuit Court and U.S. District Court for District of Connecticut and New Haven, Connecticut. Kate created School of the World after leaving her career at GE, General Electric, for a year-long sabbatical to travel the world, and we'll talk about that. But again, welcome, Kate, to Leading She. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Yeah. Well, it's exciting. I, I just get goosebumps when I talk about School of the World, and it's just such a really cool initiative. And I want to talk about your journey, how you got here, but tell us about the school. Give us some highlights of the school and how it, you know, how it came to be, what you're doing right now. Well, School of the World, as you mentioned, is an international education nonprofit, and our mission is to solve extreme poverty. 
using the power of education. We have a very grassroots strategy. We essentially organize communities around education, starting at early childhood, moving through primary school, and at least lower secondary school. So children arrive at school ready to learn. They, they gain basic foundational literacy skills in primary school, and then digital skills and life skills in lower secondary school. Mm-hmm. It seems like a big task. I mean, I think of third world countries, and I think, wow, how do you, how do you even get started building schools and getting engagement? Because you have to start with they're motivated to be educated, they're motivated to have this, but how do you how do you even get started? not easy. It's yes, very complicated, sure. but we did just get started, to be quite honest. We, I went with a tour guide. Um, he was helping me out, and he brought me to meet the mayor of Chichicastenango in Guatemala, mm. and we talked about their needs, and he said, I need schools, and I said, great. How about you do half and we do half? And he said, great. I said, let's go. Let's go. They put me up the mountain. It was getting dark out, and these mothers, it was raining. These mothers came running up the hill to bring a gift to me to say thank you for even thinking about their children and the school they were in, so-called school, it's like a kin shock. Mm-hmm. And the kids were like sitting on tree stumps and with dirt floor. And there was, you know, there was a, I guess a chalkboard, but there were no books or anything around nothing. Mm-hmm. So I thought, this is crazy. Like, yeah. of course, kids can't learn in this environment. No. And I read somewhere in my research that you said it was 12 children sharing one pencil in a classroom. Yeah, that was actually during my sabbatical that I saw that. Okay. In Tanzania. Okay. Yeah. All right. We'll get there. Um, yeah. But it's now in the, is it the 12th year or 13th year of school, the world? Yeah. We just hit our 12th anniversary a little recently. So we're just starting our 13th year. Yeah. Well, you've accomplished a lot in uh, building all of those schools and, and really making a difference and just really inspired by this. Um, Thank you. So you began this company 12, 13 years ago from really nothing, just a hope that you would, that you knew you wanted yeah. to do this, right? And you had to raise money yeah. and you had seen uh, the struggle down there and and decided you wanted to make a difference. And talk about, talk about um, what it took to get it started, and and to build 106 schools, you know, to have to get the engagement with the teachers and everything. Talk about that. Yeah, I would just say first of all, it's just like a a fierce determination yeah. and kind of relentlessness, and just failure is not an option. That was in yes. my mind the whole time. But um, you know, the beginning it's about raising money quickly, and it was really like my neighborhood, my friends, my family. I mean, the beginning wasn't even too many you know, former colleagues, I was just going out and trying to get money quickly because I knew I needed a story to tell. Right. Yeah, and I set right. the school the first year, I need three schools. Boom. We got to get it fast. And, um, we did, but of course everything gets harder and harder and harder. And most of the challenge, money's always an issue. Raising money is always challenging and it affects how much you can do. How much you raise directly affects how many kids you can reach. And, but other challenges were like daily, just crazy challenges. So we always partner with mayors. They pay for 50% of the infrastructure. Mayors in the early of the cities? Um, mayors of the, the towns. The, the towns, I see. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So they are contributing as well. Yes, they pay 50%. That okay. day when I said to, to the mayor, you pay half and I'll pay, we'll, have, we'll pay half. He said, this is a good way to go. We're going to okay. do this for everybody. It's a requirement. 
So, but in the early years, one time we were um, in the middle of working with the mayor and they had an election. And two, two of the mayors we were working with lost the election. Mm. And we couldn't, one of them we couldn't find. Like he was off. They said he was off like drinking with his cabinet <laughs> for two weeks. They yeah. couldn't find him. Yeah. The other one, it was slowly crazy, confusing. Nobody knew who was mayor because the guy who ran was using his brother's information, not his own, like, legal information. I mean, it was just crazy, crazy, crazy stuff. Crazy. We're another one. We had, um, this was the craziest, actually. We used to give the money directly to the community in the beginning because we didn't even have a bank account down there yet. We weren't, we weren't legally registered yet. And that was high risk. It was great development, right? I mean, it was great for a community to have to set up a bank account, but it was high risk. And right after we had given the money to one community, the worst storm in 67 years hit Guatemala. And this community was wiped out, like wiped out. And they were relocated as a community to another place. I mean, the poverty, people died. The number of babies that died that year, like mm-hmm. it was like 25%. And their the money is, we're like, oh my, this went on and on and on. And finally, we, we had to ask them to give the money back so that we could, we said, promise you're at the top of the list when you're ready. Because they just weren't ready. And, um, but right now, we got to put this money into motion. Other places until they get. Other yeah. places. Mm-hmm. And they, not only did they completely understand, they gave it back. Every single penny wow. was still there. Yeah. Yeah. Every single penny. Yeah, that's really cool. I mean, I think about what it took for me to start my own business and all the things that come up that you you have no, you don't know what's going to happen. Now, this is third world country. You're trying to build schools, get engagement, everything. It's a, it's a, it's, you know, entrepreneurship on steroids, you know, right? You you really can't, you can't. Yeah, uh, you have to like, and you're trying to save money. I was just telling somebody yesterday about how I used to stay in the most disgusting places just to save like five bucks a night. Right, right. And one night, one time I got so sick, I ended up in this rural, um, they called it a hospital, but it was mm. more like a little clinic, like so sick. And I, I had, um, amoebas. Oh, I see. And yes. From probably for yeah. water or something. The water. Or touch something. Or touch, you know, yeah. the sanitation mm-hmm. hygiene is not good down not there. Good. I touched something. I was so sick. I mean, it was amazing because the doctor knew exactly which type of amoebas I had. And she had me better within like 48 hours. Um, but like when I got home, my doctor was like, you had what? <laughs> they couldn't even yeah. believe it. But I was like, that's the end. I'm not, I cannot stay in any place that gross anymore. Yeah, I just won't. Yeah. 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 But I mean, it's just that, like you say, fierce determination, not giving up, just nothing's going to stop me. This is really really important to me. So, I mean, wow, congratulations yeah. on yeah. the success of of this program. And I, I want to hear more. Thank you. Yeah. Tell me about the uh, high school initiative that you have um, and how that how that works with high school students, kids and parents and how you involve yeah. them in this initiative. It's actually a wonderful program. We started it in 2013. I, I had done a service experience myself in, in Africa and I learned a lot from it and intentionally designed this program to be different. I really wanted it for young people, first of all, and I wanted it to be something where, you know, American kids just don't go drop in and play soccer with kids for a few hours or they don't just go work at an orphanage 
doing what? I don't know, you know, for a week or whatever. Um, So every group of like 25 kids Hmm. uh, agrees to raise the money for a school building, typically like three classrooms and a playground. How much is that? How much are they? Um, Each student raises or contributes $3,600. Okay. And that covers not only, um, that covers all of their expenses, you know, their airfare, their hotel, the insurance, Mm -hmm. everything. Um, And it covers the construction of a school building and a playground. Oh, wow. Okay. So that's it. And um, they they participate in seminars first. Four seminars where they, first of all, they learn how to raise money. We train them in raising money. We have them stand up and do an elevator pitch and... Um, you know, they just learn about it and they actually end up loving it. The fact that they went out and raised money and did it like themselves, um, they love it. So then they do all sorts of things to raise money, like car washes, Mm -hmm. bake sales, also like crazy things they come up with too. Um, and they learn about the culture of the country and the people and the history. And then they go down, they spend the entire week in the community Mm -hmm. from eight in the morning, they're in the community from eight in the morning until about four in the afternoon, working the whole time, like wow. making cement from scratch, then putting the cement like floors in the school building. And so it's about three quarters of the way done when the, the students arrive. Mm-hmm. The playground is from, from scratch, from beginning to end. And they do, they work really hard. Some of it's yeah. just painting, but other parts are like really hard with wheelbarrows and dirt and making the cement and you know, even like these strong boys would be like, oh my God, this is so hard. Yeah. <laughs> but they love it. They absolutely love it. Yeah. I mean, yeah. that's what a great thing to show children. Um, you know, my kids were, they're privileged kids, you know, yeah. and they don't see this part of the world. And I think it's really good for them to see it. Not only that, but raise money, go down there. I assume there are parent chaperones down there as well. Sometimes it's parents. A lot of kids don't want their parents with them. Sure. So, uh, well, first of all, we have staff. We have our, we always have a U.S. staff person mm-hmm. and we have a local staff person. We usually have more than one local staff person with a group. And of course, oh, we have these drivers who are like family and they watch out for the kids as if they were their own children. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, and then sometimes, and then we have, I love it when parents chaperone because they come back and become our best advocates. Mm-hmm. They become very close to us when they do that. Uh, but sometimes the kids are like, no way, I'm not going. My mother's going. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> really funny. <laughs> that is funny. Yeah. Um, are, is yeah. it dangerous? I mean, uh, no. No. I mean, everyone, there's, the media is so focused on danger. It is not mm-hmm. dangerous. Okay. Um, not where we go. We won't take the kids somewhere where it's sure. dangerous. Mm-hmm. And we also are like over the top about safety and health and precaution. Um, I went to my GE friends when I started this and they literally pulled together a six Sigma risk assessment team where they gave me like the chief security officer for Latin America, the chief medical director for the company, all top people mm-hmm. who ultimately developed, um, like a world-class emergency preparedness yeah. plan and, and protocols for us. Yeah. Define six Sigma for the listeners. Six Sigma is, um, how do I do that? It's a methodology that Jack Welch was just really huge on. Mm-hmm. It's about process, right? And it originally started in like a manufacturing context. Okay. Um, to about like not making assumptions and going through a process to identify where things were going wrong, um, why something was happening. And it ended up spreading through the whole company where even lawyers like I were required to do it. Mm-hmm. And I resisted it 
really hard because I didn't see the sentiment, but it ended up being, I thought, extremely valuable. It's really about asking a lot of questions, Mm -hmm. not making assumptions and using data to get to the bottom of Mm -hmm. um, a problem and find a solution. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Cool. Um, Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's great. I mean, so you started, uh, you left GE, you started uh, kind of asking them for funds and and through this process, and then that's how you began building it. It's really wonderful. The one thing I want to add about the kids before we move on, though, is just the the impact that it has on them. Yes. Um, You know, they really... They're so moved by it. Mm-hmm. And the first thing is, of course, just this sense of gratitude. They just start to realize how much they really have mm-hmm. and how little most of the world has. Right. Not take it for granted. Right. Yeah. Yeah. The second thing is really just, I am so lucky for the education that I have, mm-hmm. the school that I have, the education that I have. I, I can't take that for granted. Mm-hmm. It's amazing, really. And then, there are other just other benefits you don't even expect, like confidence, right? These kids have a lot of more confidence after going to a country like this and yeah. experiencing things that are like way out of their comfort zone. Um, they just and they have a um, empathy. Empathy. Like they develop a greater empathy. Yeah, because you know we know uh, if you've ever raised teenagers, you know there is some self-centeredness there and yeah. <laughs> when they when they get out of that and they're not sleeping in till noon you know and they're having to lug concrete around to build schools i mean gosh i would think that that would change a child yeah it does yeah. it really does yeah. yeah we have great like survey results i mean it's amazing the number that say they're going to study harder yeah. when they get back like that was a big surprise for me yeah. wonderful you know 70% said they absolutely are going to study harder you know, it's amazing. It's just great. I love the program and, and 99.99% of the people who have anything to do with it love it too. Even yeah. our, our local team, they just love those weeks mm-hmm. where they get to be there. And I brought a minister of education once, former minister who's now on our board mm-hmm. to a site where the kids were. And she, she literally teared up. She cried like seeing all these young American wow. kids, wow. you know, coming and doing the mm-hmm. Yeah. Incredible. Another thing, I just want to mention this yeah. too, because people are, there's a lot of misunderstanding about volunteerism, but I'll never forget a mayor um, speaking to the community when the kids were there after the school was built, saying, um, you know, these kids didn't have to be here. Like they chose, they could be home on their comfortable sofa watching TV or off in a beautiful place on their vacation. And they chose to do this they, because they believe in helping people. And this is an American value that we need to learn to emulate. Yes. Yes. You know, so there's a lot. Along. And he really believed that. Yeah. And um, mm-hmm. ironically, it was during the Boston Marathon thing. And we were down there with all these kids from Boston. So they're safer down there than they would have been if they were up here. But there's kind of um, a backlash at the moment about Americans being involved um, mm-hmm. in countries like this. Mm. And it's really gone. It's gone a little bit overboard yeah. from my perspective. So yeah, um, I just wanted to mention that. Yeah, thank you. Uh, well, the pandemic's effect on education in our country and throughout the world, of course, has been profound. You began uh, 2021 Project Equity Initiative. Talk about COVID mm-hmm. and the pandemic and and what mm-hmm. uh, what you're doing there along those lines. Mm-hmm. Well, just like here, schools closed down. Very quickly, maybe only a week later than when they closed the United States. Only there, 
at least for the vast majority of kids, and for sure the, all of the children we work, there's no such thing as distance learning. You know, nobody has a laptop. Nobody has Wi-Fi. Nobody has a TV. Yeah. You know, or they might, but they might get like one crazy channel. And they're certainly not going to get the, the government cable TV program. Um, we found a, a big percentage don't even have a radio. Some don't even, many don't even have electricity in some of the places we work. Mm-hmm. So distance learning, not going to work. Um, and it was going to take the government a really long time to, to get around to printing guides and delivering them to the communities. And the kids wouldn't even get them once they did that, or maybe half of them would get them. So we just mobilized. First of all, the first year, we just mobilized right away. It was the beginning of the school year there. They closed all year long. And we mobilized right away with like WhatsApp groups for parents, WhatsApp groups for our, our um, middle school scholarship kids. Like we're the parents we would send like tips every day. Like we do recordings. Like you may not know how to read, but you can still, you know, um, teach your children how to count. Like count the, the, um, the corn kernels or have them draw a map around the neighborhood. Like just different little things that they could do. We recorded our own radio um, programs and then tried to work with all the church radio stations to air them. And then as that year coming to a close, you said we have to get, schools are going to stay closed. And mm-hmm. they have been closed for almost this it's close to two years that these, schools, these kids will essentially have no school. Mm-hmm. And so we did a summer school in um, their summer is like January, mm-hmm. February. So we did a summer school intensive, you know, where each kid would get 40 hours of instruction from a teacher that we had trained to try to catch them up. And then we had, uh, we recruited university students to do a phone tutoring program with, with kids. We, our whole idea was we need to um, ameliorate the uneven impact, you know, the kind of unequal impact of the, the pandemic on the poorest and most vulnerable children. And that's why we called it Project Equity. Like fairness requires that you really step up and invest in these kids who've been harmed the most. We did virtual teacher training. We had, that's where we trained almost 5,000 teachers. We had a five-part training where it was really amazing. Teachers actually use their own data on their plans. You know, they don't get paid a lot to, you know, be able to join these trainings where they mm-hmm. learned how to evaluate kids. Where are they? Where are mm-hmm. they? How much learning have they lost? How, you know, where are they right now on the learning journey? And how can I catch them up quickly? Mm-hmm. And how can I work with them now? You know, so mm-hmm. the teachers do come and bring homework now during this year. They come, they bring homework, they take homework, but that's not, you, know, you really can't call that school. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I'm just so inspired by your story. And, um, you know, I interview a lot of executive and entrepreneurial women on this podcast and, um, and myself included, we've reached a level of success in our careers. And we, I think we all reach a point, most of us, and we look up and say, I've got to give back, you know, and, and we do that by board service, you know, volunteering, giving money and time to, volunteer Mm -hmm. organizations that need our help. But you really just took this to another level. Um, Talk about your journey to get here. I thought it was really fascinating. What made you, where were you in your life? What was going on? And what, uh, Mm -hmm. what made you decide to to do this? Well, I was about 40, 41, I guess. Um, I was really still in my, you know, full force career at GE. Mm -hmm. And it really, it ended up being, I was at GE as, um, as a lawyer, loaned out by a law firm first for two years. So it was closer to 10 years that I had been there. 
Oh, closer um, to ten years point. at GE. Yeah. Okay. When you when you combined all it. I see. Okay. Yeah, but I um, and I had a great job. I was super like, wow, what a great job. Um, because I worked in public policy, which you know is, can can be really interesting. But my all of a sudden my brother died. Yeah. And he died suddenly. He hadn't been sick, or he had been sick. He had a number of. He actually had. Um, he basically died of alcoholism. It was oh, extremely difficult sorry. and very sad for mm-hmm. my family. It was a long 10-year yeah. journey. Mm-hmm. That's a hard one to even talk about. Yeah. Take your time. Even all these years later. <laughs> I yeah, I understand. Um, anyway, before we could even really absorb that, um, my father got sick and my father died. Mm-hmm. And then within months, my mother died. And I was exhausted. Uh, but the other main thing was when my parents died, it was really overwhelming to kind of see that great lives they led. Mm. They were like classic greatest generation. Mm-hmm. My father was a public servant his whole life. You know, he was a um, fighter pilot World War II. He came back. He also became a lawyer, but he devoted himself to public service for many years. In the third act of his life, he was a judge. And of course, my mother made it possible for him to do all of this with you know, six kids at home. Yeah. Um, but they always drilled it into every one of us too. It was like, you have, um, do something that's not about yourself, do something, yeah. you know, get involved. If something's not about you, doesn't matter what it is, just not about you. Mm-hmm. And I had done things too. I had done like boards, and, but you know, it was different seeing like this huge amount of, you know, a thousand people coming through and telling you stories about how they impacted my parents impacted their lives. You know, there was one gentleman who said, um, when Martin Luther King was killed, your father was walking, he changed my life. He was walking the streets of Bridgeport. He was walking the projects. And he said to me, you know, I was 16, and he said to me, don't just complain. Get involved. Do something. Yeah. And he said, today, I just want you to know that there are many awards named after me, meaning this gentleman, in Bridgeport. And I was like, oh, my God. Like, wow. I haven't done enough. And I just, my mother, actually, this is totally different, but her last words were, I've had a great life. Yeah. And I thought about that. It does, right? And I thought about that. And I I was, it's it's comforting, right, to hear, but also, like, I want to be able to say that, right? And um, how am I going to get there, really, to be able to say that? And when I realized what I'm doing right now is not going to get me there. Right. It became like climbing Mount Everest to go to work every day. Yeah. And that's when I decided that I wanted to leave. And Yeah. So within 20 months, you, your brother, your father, your mother died, and your mom said, yeah. I had a great life. You've said, yeah. you know, hey, I, I, don't, I don't know that I could say that if I died today, and I, I need right. to do something different. And then what did you decide to do then? I didn't know what it was going to be, right? <laughs> I just thought, I thought I'll, I'll figure it out, you know. Yeah. I'm going to take a break first. I'm going to take a break. I'm going to yeah. go travel. I'm going to go to Argentina because I can afford to go for a month and because it's safe for women to travel there by themselves. And I had never traveled like that by myself before. And a month turned into more than a year, actually, on and off of traveling around the world from you know South America, Africa, and Europe. And I just experienced so much starting right there in Argentina seeing the kids like begging in the streets, mm. collecting cardboard, working like in the Andes, you'd see them working under the hot sun when they should have been in school. 
at the time, like I wasn't ready to think yet. And, but I absorbed it all, yeah. you know, and then I was in Africa. Um, I was in Tanzania, which is where I did the service experience. And I would visit a classroom where there would be, you know, 12 kids sharing two pencils. Mm-hmm. I mean, and I thought, this is crazy. Yeah. I got home from that trip. And in my mailbox was a pen, with my name on it as like a marketing gimmick from some company. Yeah. And I thought, this is just insane. Because what do we do? We throw those things away. You know, it's just terrible. So, and these are problems that, you know, have, can be addressed, not as easy as it looks, but um, later I went to Zambia and I went to a community where kids literally walk through crocodile infected waters to get to school every day. And again, like this shouldn't be, this is just crazy. But then I went to Europe, you know, and I indulged for a while, but I also visited Normandy where my father's brother was buried Mm -hmm. Um, and that's one of those wow experiences like the kids who travel with me to Guatemala to see that yeah and understand the sacrifice Mm -hmm. Uh, and my father had been there too so that was very moving and gets you thinking as well about um, selflessness or being more generous yeah I mean it sounds like your parents have been uh, were really inspirational to you that in their lives, but even after after they died, you know, people were saying, "Oh, they did this, they did that." They were really yeah. truly public servants, and you, right. I think, were looking at your corporate job and thinking, "I need to do right. something else." And then, when right. during your sabbatical did you get clear on what you needed to do next? Well, you know, when I was at in that role at GE on the public policy, I always used to think I'm on the wrong side of every issue. <laughs> like <laughs> this is not really this is not really me. And but I was a really I. I had given myself a year to not think about it. I said, I'm not thinking about a thing. I'm not worrying about money. I'm not thinking about a thing. And so it was like December, around December 19th, I was in Spain. And I knew I was like going home in two days. And I woke up one morning and I, all of a sudden, I just said, I can do this. Yeah. I think I can do this. And the this wasn't that well defined yet, but I knew I was going to do something for children in the developing world. Yes. The poorest children, most vulnerable children. And it took some time to get there and define it, but that was it. Like I woke up and I was like, I can You're do this. Clear. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah. I would say like, it'd be, if only everyone could have done that, like taking a year, know. you know, we everyone could don't. do that, take a year. We don't think we have the time. I, I Maybe many of us don't. We have kids, we have families, responsibilities. Right. We don't have the resources. Right. I, I do think it's important for us to take a break, you know, and there are women in the podcast that have done that, yeah. that have taken a month or something or gone on a retreat and then had this sort of aha moment, like, I'm not doing yeah. what I'm supposed to be doing. Here's what I should be doing. And it takes time right. to really get away from it and get clear, don't you think? Right. For sure. For yeah. sure. Yeah. Really. And I I also think, you know, after taking a break like that and being inspired, going to places like this where you're you're inspired. It's not, you know, just sad, you know, going to these countries, but you're also just inspired by all the wonderful people that you meet. You know, they're they're the same as us, right? They have the same values. And so you're like, you're so high on life and you just think anything's possible. So I was fearless. I was like, I can do this. I can do that, that, that. You know, of course, that, 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 that was pretty hard but um yeah it is it is hard but you, yeah you're like me you don't you don't give up um let's let's talk a right. little about your uh your time at GE your corporate you know job and you, you are a an attorney um 
you were at uh, GE Corporation as vice president of uh, external affairs, and it sounds like you were there more like 10 years on loan and then as an employee. Um, And you said about GE, as long as you loved to learn and worked hard, you would have a place there and you would succeed. And you also said um, that you'd always created your own roles there. And I thought that was interesting. That's pretty hard to do in mm-hmm. a corporation. How did you talk talk about your time at GE and how did you create your own roles? Well, I actually started as, um, as an outside lawyer managing litigation for mm-hmm. a woman who um, was on maternity leave. And that her, she came back, but I ended up staying on loan managing okay. litigation. Mm-hmm. And then they started talking about wanting to hire me. And that was a whole process, like a lot of discussion, because I knew I didn't want to just manage litigation. Um, and we, and I knew I saw that there was an opportunity to work in public policy because they had had someone doing government relations work. And I knew I wanted to do that. They wanted me more on regulatory work. So we were like negotiating, like, I'll do this, I'll do that. And um, so that's how it started. But then when you just start adding value in the areas that you loved, like the public policy work. I just started to add value there and I kind of finished like a big project. Like ever, privacy was the thing in those days, your information. And um, everybody wanted to be a part of privacy. And for me, it was like painstakingly boring. Um, but I did it and I learned a lot about the mechanics of the business that helped me add value to the public policy mm-hmm. side. Um, and then I would be like, okay, now I want to do um, a, a um, Strategy work with consumer advocacy groups. I want to be able to work with them. They're okay. Because once you earn the trust, you know, um, then they they expect you to add value in that arena. And so they would allow me to go off and try to do it. And I worked so hard also. Um, and then I would say, well, now I want to learn Community Reinvestment Act. It's another opportunity that I saw. Because um, but GE was a bank. I mean, they had, G Capital had banks. And they had new big um, community reinvestment act responsibilities because they had started mortgage lending and they had to go from $5 million to $100 million in community investment, equity, debt, and philanthropy. And I said, I want to do that. That's what I want to do now. And so they said, okay. And, you know, I did that. I learned all about that. And then I said, I want to do international and international public policy. And so I started working with a joint venture in Central America and some regulations that they were facing. And so that's just how I found GE at the time was if you were um, like a naturally curious person who loved to learn, then, and you worked really hard and you added value, then they would let you. Um, yeah. I realized now that I was an entrepreneur. That's, that's what I was going to say, that you... You, you and I are both entrepreneurs at heart, I think. I see that in you. Right. And I was with big companies for 13 years, and I was kind of a misfit there. Uh, if, if something didn't make sense to me, I would speak up. I was not, a, I would say, a good soldier, you know, uh, in the Army. And uh, mm-hmm. so, and that's, that's a sign of an entrepreneur, you know, that uh, if something doesn't make sense to you, you know, it's like you're not in – always enticed or, or, or encouraged to to speak up. And so right. I saw, I see you in that way too, that you kind of found your way to like have your own little company within this big company and treat yeah. it like an entrepreneur. Then you had these experiences in your family, the sabbatical, and it's like, all right, I can be an entrepreneur in this way, you know. 
and uh, and started your company, you know, this. Right. Uh, well, I didn't process. think of it that way at the time. Yeah, at the time. But as you look back, I'm sure you do. Yeah. Yeah. I totally do. I totally do. And that was actually a second career for me, to tell you the truth. Law was a second career for me. My first career, I actually started in the, in the nonprofit sector, raising money, um, which has turned out to be helpful, right? Obviously. It's yeah. an art. It's an art. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. You've talked about GE and you said that you believe that, and I believe this too, that individual values, your individual values, what you deem to be important to you, have to align with the company you work for and that you would recommend that. And you saw some things at GE where maybe their your values didn't align with some of the things you saw going on. Talk about that. So I kind of carved out this role where I people would say, oh, you're the consumer advocate in the company. So like I would fight, I would speak up on issues like identity theft, like you have to do something. You can't, you know, not do anything. If you don't invest in helping people who are victims of identity theft, then it's going to come back to bite you. And, you know, that would all happen. And at some point they valued that enough that they would even bring me into um, new product development that they were working on or deals that they were working on to kind of shape what was where they would, where it'd be, you know, where they would cause public policy issues and what was fair consumer based on the, you know, my learnings and you know, what I know about the legislative arena, what I know about the consumer groups, all of that. Um, and most of the time it was a great, great job. But um, during that time when that, that 20 months when my brother and parents died, um, it was all about subprime mortgages and things were different on subprime mortgages. They really were. And it was at the same time as I'm seeing, you know, these I'm grieving these people who contributed so much in life and, you know, kind of arguing with people all the time on subprime mortgages and people not really wanting to hear it. Um, I was one of those people too, who spoke up. Like I was never afraid to speak up, but nobody wanted to hear it. No, they didn't. It was party was just, going on and they did not want yeah, the party to end. Not at all. And so I was just like, I just can't, I just can't. And there's some bad things going on. People were getting loans that should not be getting loans, buying houses they should not, they could not afford. And so, yeah, you're right. And they did not want it to end. Right. Nobody did. And you think about the chain, the chain, like, you know, it started with the the company that's doing the lending and then then they would sell the loans, flip the loans two months, you know, two weeks later to Wall Street and then Wall Street would package it. I mean, it was just one person after another, after a person in this chain of taking advantage of people. We we call they it do. yeah the hot potato. They just continue to resecuritize it. They right, take the risk. Right, they securitize right, it. They securitize right, it. Right. And so nobody's holding the hot potato. Uh, yeah, I'll end. never forget. Actually, you know, you're reminding me. I, I I worked for a brilliant lawyer. My boss was really truly brilliant. And I remember in the early days of this, him sitting there and saying, "It's got to land somewhere. The risk has to land somewhere." And but it just kept going. But he was like, "Got it can't." You know, it's not going to disappear. Yeah. Um, he was just, I didn't really understand it at that point, to tell you the truth. I was just seeing, starting to see the writing on the wall with what was happening in Congress, what was happening in the regulatory agencies, what was happening with consumer groups, what the data was coming from the Fed about um, defaults. And, right. you know, it was just kind of the writing on the wall. Yeah. It all came tumbling down kind of yeah. beginning in 2007, but the last quarter of 2008 was unprecedented. I don't think we'll ever see anything like that. Again, I, yeah, I was gone. I hope <laughs> I was long gone. You were gone. Good for point. you. I was I was right yeah. in the middle of it. It was a tough year business wise, but uh, mm-hmm. in about I was sitting in Spain watching it from a distance. Yeah, yeah. It was 
It was pretty phenomenal that that quarter, yep. the bankruptcies and so forth. In um, a story you told me about in the year around 2000, GE put an ad in the New York Times um, and all of the faces, faces of, I guess, some of the business unit heads and board members. And there was not one woman in there. And there was one person of color. Talk about that. Yeah. So it wasn't actually an ad. It was a, it was a, a, a reporting a journalist okay. that did the story on the front page of the business section of the Sunday Times. And I may not you know, have it exactly right because it was a long time ago mm-hmm. now, but essentially it was in this, the headline was the face of GE and it had a picture of like every officer, you know, every um, business, top business guy. And that was it. Not a single woman. And that's what it was about. And that was when one, one man who was, who was African-American. Right. Yeah. No women. And that made such a kind of splash. Um, you know, they started this. I think that's when they started getting serious about, you know, these women's um, groups within the company. Mm-hmm. What they call those groups now. I've been out of the corporate world for so resource. long now. I think they're resource groups. You know, yeah. yeah. Um, and they did this conference um, for women. It was early. It was like right when I started, I think, officially, right when I started officially. And so they had like 500 women they invited and I got to go and, um, I can't remember the name of the woman, Heidi. Someone she was at she ended up at City Corps. She had been the CEO Priceline in their early days. Okay. She came to speak and she held up the newspaper article and she said something like, you know, what are you gonna do about that? And then Jack Jack Welch came the next day to speak. Okay. And he was really, you know, he was tired. I'll give him that. He was through the with the Honeywell acquisition that failed. Um and he's probably irritable too, but he spoke and then he took questions and a, a young woman came up and she said, you know, Heidi so-and-so um, spoke and she said, we ought to demand a seat at the table. And what do you think about that? And he said, turn the lights up. I want to see who asked this question. And they turned the lights up and he said, let me tell you, don't you ever demand a seat at my table? No one demands seat at my table I was so horrified like just horrified because that's a bully you know and I really don't have a lot of respect for someone who wants to bully a young woman trying to ask a fair question um I really lost a lot of respect for him in that moment I do think he let it he, he ran a great company you know and he he was an amazing business guy I mean, yeah, I read really his book. I I, he, yeah, I have a lot. Yeah. I had a lot of respect for some of the, his business philosophies and what worked. But right, I mean, in right. that case, what you what you and everyone saw is that New York Times said, you know, here's here are the face of here's the face of GE, bunch of white guys, one person of color, no women. She calls it yeah. out, right? And right. then he says, right. "Oh no, you don't. You don't get a seat at my table." Not only it's just like shutting her down. You know, right? And saying intimidating, trying to intimidate, intimidate people. and bully her back into whatever her place. Right? Uh, don't tell me that I'm not doing something right. Right. That's yeah. how I experienced yeah, it anyway, yeah, for yeah. sure. Sure, yeah. I get it. Um, I have something in common with you. Uh, well, a few things, but here's one that I that I uh, related to, and that is when I led my company, I had a hard time. Uh, celebrating our wins. I was criticized for that as the leader of my company. 
and they're like, hey, we need to celebrate when we win. And I, I tend to, you know, like, okay, we won it. What did we learn? What could we have done better? Let's move on to the next thing. And yeah. you, you can relate to that, right? Totally. Yeah. Totally. What have you learned? What would you say about that? This is a long process for me, to tell you the truth. Um, going from being like an individual thought leader to being a leader of people. Um, and it was not easy. It was, a, it was a gradual kind of long transition to realize people need to celebrate. People need to be recognized. I never needed that, right? Yeah, and I I'd be like, why, do, why does everyone need all this rah-rah stuff? You know, like, why can't people just do their jobs, you know? Yeah. yeah, like I was intrinsically motivated. So I never needed any of that. Um, and that, you know, was a, was a process for me of learning that people needed that and to stop and do it and recognize it mm -hmm. and recognize people. And also like um, the cultural down there was, it's very different from the culture here. And I've had, my God, I came out of GE Capital, one of the most scrappy places in yeah. Stanford, but it's basically New York. And mm -hmm. Um, you know, that, that and they need to like, be like, good morning. How are you? How's your mother? How's your father? How's your daughter? How's your son? I mean, that's, you know, and I would just be like, let's go. <laughs> yeah. It was, um, I just changed that too. And they did some adjusting too. There was like a learning cultural learning process. When Kate asked the question, she really just wants to know the answer. You know, she's not. No ulterior criticizing just, and Yeah. Yeah. That's it. Just wants to know the answer. So anyway, it was, a, it was a, it was a process. It was not, yeah. uh, has not been easy, but it's gotten better. Yeah. To tell you the truth, I've learned to do it. And I've been, I've, one of the things I've, I've loved actually over the last 12 years is growing people. Mm -hmm. I've had some super talented, super dedicated people. And I have discovered that I love growing people. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's really, that's wonderful. And I'm sure you're a, a great leader, a good role model. And you had said that sometimes you've been underestimated by, Perhaps some of your board members. How? What would you say there? I've kind of been, in some ways, I've been underestimated my whole life because I'm maybe I'm, I'm petite, right? I'm petite. I'll never forget. I was when I worked for the Boy Scouts. I used to run events, and I was running a an event. The men's and boys wear industry, and the chairperson said to my boss, "You got to give me someone different. Don't give me this girl. You got to give me someone different." And he was like, "You don't underestimate her." And it, the event was so successful. He was like hugging me and giving me a big kiss on stage. You know, it was one of those like really funny things. So I never really minded it. You know, sometimes you can take advantage of you being can. underestimated. You can. If your competition underestimates yeah. you, it can yeah. be an advantage. That's easier to do when you're younger. Yes. I found it was easier to do when you're younger. As you get older, um, I definitely did have felt over the years, both with board members and people outside, that sometimes... Um, they, they want to see something different. They want to see a male um, stereotype of a leader. Mm -hmm. Yeah, And that's yeah. just not me. You know, that's no, just not me. I'm not going to stand up and just be like, you know, I find that to be, I'm very um, modest person. I don't like a lot of attention. Um, people wanted me to get up there and talk like, we did this, we did that, yeah. and we're doing this, and we're so great. And, and I'd be like, we just started it you know? yeah. or like this is hard work it's not going to be fast it's going to be it's going to take time you know results real results take time right and 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 i'm not going to stand up there and you know and do that yeah um, i mean i think there is a there is a uh, to, to stereotype i mean men you know it's like they want to 
be braggadocious, you know, hey, we did this, we did this, we increased sales, we did talk about, and and then when you raise money, you have to tell people what you've accomplished, right? But, yeah. you know, yeah. let's be, yeah. let's not exaggerate yeah. what we've done. Let's, you know, promote yeah. it. Uh, right. Yeah. And I can do that. You know, that's yeah. fine. I can do that. But sometimes people will, you need, I need to hit it a little bit harder sometimes because mm-hmm. when I'm one-on-one, because sometimes people see a woman like me and they think I'm, you know, big heart. Yeah. Like just one of those people with a big heart. They don't think, you know, wow, she came out of the business sector. She has a lot to contribute. She, right. you know, maybe this is a, a good um, model here. So, you know, sometimes I have, to take, I have to hit it a little bit harder. Well, Kate, I have loved getting to know about you and researching your company. And um, congratulations. I mean, uh, we all talk about giving back. We all try to do our thing, but you've really done it. I mean, you built 106 schools, you've influenced children and parents, and uh, not only in third world countries, but those high school kids that are, yeah, that are doing almost this Yeah, almost a thousand too. now. Yeah, yeah. Almost I mean, it's just so, yeah. just so cool. I just, uh, I'm so, uh, I'm so inspired by you, and I think our listeners will be too, and uh, I've been uh, fortunate to get to know you. Well, it's been my pleasure, actually. I've loved talking to you too. I yeah. really have. I'm just going to say, if your listeners want to learn more about School of the World, they can go to School of the World, School of the World, School of org. It's really been such a pleasure to talk with yeah, you. Yeah, it's been great. Thank you, Kate. Okay, thank you. All right, take care. Thank you for listening to this episode of Leading She. Please check out many other Leading She episodes, which are wonderful. We discuss challenges these accomplished women have overcome in their careers. Please subscribe to this podcast and rate it and review it. Follow Leading She on Instagram, Facebook, and LinkedIn. And visit our website, leadingshe.com, where we have ideas and wisdom for women leaders.